Uh, the scripture we're reading this morning, we've been going through a series of sermon on the book of Genesis. And this morning we're reading Genesis 41. Uh, we're going to read the first 15 verses and then skip to verse 25. This is a reading of God's word, Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. They fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh woke, and he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump ears. And Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offense today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with his own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have, asked it, said, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. In verse 25, it says, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. Seven lean and ugly cows that came up after are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty all, all throughout the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land of reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that it, the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. And set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them all gather all the food of these good years that are coming. Store it under authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for uh, being with us this morning. I pray that now you'd open up our ears and our hearts to see all that you have for us, all your beautiful promises and truth, and especially Jesus. Help us to see him, for we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. If you just join us this morning, we're right in the midst of a series of sermons on dreams. We're calling it Dreaming God's Dreams. And we're looking at the life of Joseph. Joseph's life was really all about dreams. And in prison, Joseph learns to enter into the dreams of other people. He had dreams, but he enters into the dreams and nightmares of other people. Throughout the series, we've been mainly talking about dreams, but today I want to talk about a specific kind of dreams, which is a nightmare. Nightmares. Have you ever had a nightmare? When I was younger, I used to have all kinds of reoccurring nightmares. I don't know if you had those. When I was younger, I used to have these dreams. I don't know if you had this particular kind of dream, that I was in a class that I didn't know I was registered for. And I was all of a sudden, I'm in this class, and all these people around me, they're like all ready to go. They're, they are ready for the exam, ready for the papers, and I'm just like, I didn't even know I was in this class. And I'm panicked. I'm panicked because I'm not prepared. I had similar dreams when I became a minister, as a young minister. I'd have this reoccurring dream. It's super vivid. And this dream was, I want the church... And like the senior pastor would be like, Dennis, you're preaching today. And I'm like, I'm preaching today? Like, I, I did not know. And I'm trying to come up with, there's like 15 minutes before service. And I'm writing a sermon down. Like, I'm, I'm trying to prepare a whole sermon in 15 minutes. I'm furiously writing. And I get up there to preach and I read my notes and I can't read the notes. <laughs> like, they're blurry, they're scribbled, they're crazy. And I'm just like in a panic. I don't know what to do. And I... You know, sometimes nightmares, they are really just a reflection of our own anxieties. Like, I have all these anxieties, and my dreams are just a reflection of it. And sometimes that's what nightmares are about. Sometimes nightmares are really driven by our fears. And today we're going to talk about a man, his name is Pharaoh. He is the, uh, the most powerful leader in the known world, yet he has these nightmares, which I'm going to share, is likely driven by his own anxieties. And so many of us, we're talking about dreams, so many of us live in fear of our nightmares instead of being led by our dreams. Some of us are more driven by nightmares, by fear, than by hope of what God has yet to come reserved for us. So today we're going to talk about that. How do we go from living in fear to living by faith. What does that look like? Today, as we look at the story of Pharaoh, we want to look at three things. Number one, the problem of nightmares, that all of us literally and more specifically figuratively have them. Secondly, how do we overcome nightmares? And finally, uh, we're going to look at the whole story of going from nightmares to living God's dream. Those three things. And the first thing we're going to look at is this idea of nightmares. We've been looking at the story of Joseph. Joseph's life starts out uh, charmed. You know, he's the favorite son. He has this big, giant dream as a teenager. And these dreams make his brothers jealous. They're angry with him. And the dreams feel like a joke to Joseph because he's he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's falsely accused of rape. And he's thrown in prison. But in those prison years, what we've seen the last couple of weeks is that Joseph, God's working in Joseph's life. Uh, he stops obsessing about his own dreams, and he starts entering into the dreams of other people. He starts engaging with other people. At the end of chapter 40, we read the cupbearer, 
he interprets the dream of the cupbearer. And it seems like good news because the cupbearer, he tells the cupbearer, just remember me. When you get up out of this place, when you talk to Pharaoh, remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me. But the, at the end of chapter 40, it says that the cupbearer, once good things happen, he forgets about Joseph. And that's so often the case in our lives. When good things happen, we forget God. We forget the people who've helped us. That's what happens to Joseph. Joseph has to wait two more years before the cupbearer. He finally remembers Joseph. The start of chapter 41. Because Pharaoh has some terrifying dreams. And the cupbearer finally remembers, oh, there's a guy who interpreted my dreams, Joseph. And Pharaoh calls uh, Joseph before him, calls him before him. And in chapter 41, he tells him his dreams. It's a simple dream. There was, Pharaoh tells him the dream that there were uh, seven cows, beautiful, uh, plump cows, and they're eaten up by seven deathly looking uh, gaunt cows. Eat up uh, the seven uh, cows. The grain, seven grains, similarly. Beautiful grains of wheat. They're eaten up by seven dying, uh, broken reeds. Pharaoh's troubled by this dream. You know, it shakes him to the core. Uh, he asks all of his advisors what it meant. The dream was clearly symbolic because cows in ancient time, in ancient e- Egypt, cows were represented the whole nation. Uh, grain was a chief export of Egypt. Egypt was known as the bread basket of the region. People would come there for bread. They were known for their bread. Clearly, this dream is symbolic. It really goes to the heart of the nation. But it still doesn't explain why Pharaoh's so traumatized by it. You know, when I had dreams, when you guys have dreams, it might mess you up for a few moments after you wake up, but you just forget about it, right? You just go on with your day. Pharaoh's, for Pharaoh, it's not like that. Pharaoh has this dream, and he cannot get over it. He is clearly traumatized by this dream. He cannot get He calls all of his advisors. He asks them about it. They can't answer, and he is a mess. He's a wreck. And the question is, why is Pharaoh so agitated by it? And the answer most likely, which I alluded to earlier, was that it taps into the deepest insecurities of Pharaoh. It taps into his deepest insecurities. It taps into his deepest anxieties. Often people with a lot of power, uh, people in positions of power, often are very fearful because they have a lot to lose. They have a lot on their plate. They have a lot of responsibilities. And they're deeply anxious because they're afraid of losing it all. You know, uh, we live in a climate today of fear where you can be a governor of a state. You can be a CEO. You can be a acclaimed director. And one picture gets leaked. One picture comes out. One person uh, accuses you of assault. And in a matter of days, your career could be over. Matter of days, you could have you, you could have built your career through a lifetime of working, of sweating, of hustling, and in one day your career could be over. That could be it. You can never work again in that same industry. And so many people, uh, especially people in power, are are fearful. Uh, we're fearful that we could lose it all. You know, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar is very. Uh, the dream of Pharaoh is very. Rep- uh, is very reminiscent of another dream. If you know the Bible, uh, there is another book in the Bible called Daniel. 
and Daniel 2, there's a similar dream, which is a parallel. It's of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the great ruler over all of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar also has this dream. He has this dream that there's this great image made in his image. The head is of gold. Uh, the chest is of silver. The thighs are of bronze, but it has clay feet. And in his dream, a small, tiny pebble hit the clay feet, uh, shatters it, and what happens? The whole statue topples over. It, what is that dream about? That dream about is another dream about a powerful man who is erecting something great, but it has no foundation. It has clay feet. And because it has no foundation, it topples over. And ultimately, what both those dreams about is that everything that we build, all of our dreams, our career, things that we place value in, the problem is they all have clay feet. You know, so many of our dreams have clay feet. Things that we love, that we build, that we want in our life, that we spent our lifetime trying to achieving, we know inside they all have clay feet. They can all be diminished and demolished. We can make mistakes in our career, in our life. Uh, there can be tragedy, there can be illness, there can be death, there can be disease. And we know that at any moment, any of those things can topple over and be crushed. And there's a deep anxiety within all of us. Because all of our dreams, all the things that we work for, they have clay feet. You know, I was uh, looking at studies of uh, people, teenagers in college. And on college campuses, there is a mental health crisis. So many of our young people, they're anxious about failure. They're anxious about debt. They're anxious about not getting that internship, not getting that job. And it's, it, it, it's causing depression. Deep anxiety and insecurity. And all of us, we struggle with some form of that, some fear of failure. That's why we have so many anxious people today. Well, what is the alternative to that? You know, one alternative to that is Joseph. When you look at Joseph's life, it's incredible. Joseph's in prison. Uh, his life is on the line, but yet when he calls, he's called before Pharaoh, Joseph has all kinds of confidence. And it's interesting what he says. When Joseph is asked about interpreting the dreams, verse 16, Joseph has the audacity to, uh, to correct Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh says, Joseph, I heard you interpret dreams. He says this in verse 16. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph says, well, you got it wrong. I actually don't interpret dreams. It's not a gift of mine. But God will do that. He will interpret the dreams, and he will tell me. Uh, Joseph, uh, the roles are reversed. Pharaoh's the one who should be powerful, who should be confident. Uh, Joseph's in prison, and he's being called before the king. The king can execute him. The king can banish him for life. Joseph should be the one nervous, but he's not nervous at all. He has all kinds of confidence. Uh, he has all kinds of hopes. And Joseph has this conversation with Pharaoh, which completely changes everything. Pharaoh goes from being anxious. Uh, Pharaoh goes from being a nervous wreck to being filled with peace and, and, and confidence. How does that happen? Well, the second thing is this, that Joseph teaches Pharaoh about conquering nightmares. In one conversation uh, with Joseph, Pharaoh goes from this fear, he cannot sleep, he has anxiety 
uh, to the end of it, Pharaoh's a changed person. And how do we get there? How does Joseph do it? Well, the first thing is this, is that Joseph uh, interprets the dream of Pharaoh. And he essentially tells Pharaoh four things about the dream. First, uh, both dreams are about the same things. Secondly, the seven cows and the seven grains of wheat are about seven years. Third, uh, the seven years of famine will follow seven years of plenty. There's going to be seven bountiful, beautiful, robust years, but there are going to be seven of the darkest drought, rainless years in Egypt's history. The fourth thing that Joseph explains to him is that the duplications of the dream means that it's a certain thing. It's for sure going to happen. Those four things. Uh, Joseph explains that to Pharaoh, but not only that, what's embedded in Joseph's interpretation of the dreams is this idea of God's plan and God's power. God's plan and God's power. Notice what Joseph says to Pharaoh in verse 28. Uh, Joseph says this, It is as I told Pharaoh... God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Notice what uh, Joseph says is not, God knows what's going to happen. God has been to the future. He's omnipresent. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't say that. He not only says God knows the future, he says God is going to do it. God is going to accomplish this. He's going to bring the years of plenty and the years of want. That God is sovereignly orchestrating all of it. Uh, What Joseph teaches uh, Pharaoh is this idea of the providence of God. The providence of God. The providence of God is a doctrine steeped in church history which is based on all these different parts of the Bible. What is the providence of God? Well, I love the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is a historic confession that the church has used. And the Heidelberg Catechism in verse 28, 27 rather, asks the question, what is the providence of God? And I love the explanation. This is what it says. It says, The providence of God is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby by his hand he upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. The providence of God, as the Heidelberg Catechism presents it, means that the earth, the world, cannot sustain itself. It needs to be sustained by the power of God. Not only that, but God not only sustains everything, he's in every detail of life. Uh, The smallest things, from planting to want, from the grass that grows, the sun that shines, not only that, he orchestrates all things. Everything is in his hand and is directed by God. It's the providence of God. That God is uh, a God who holds all things, including the smallest things. I love what Jesus says in Luke 12. It says that God numbers the hairs on our head. You know, all kinds of people are interested in uh, data, like health data. They know their body mass index. They know their sleep cycles. They uh, count how many steps they take per day. But not even the most neurotic person knows how many hairs of head they have on their head. You know, not, nobody knows that data, uh, not even Amazon, but God knows that. God knows how many, exactly how many hairs, and he orchestrates it, you have on your head. He says, not a sparrow falls to the ground, not a bird 
the billions of birds on this world, that God does not know it. Uh, the providence of God is that God, and there is no accidents, there's no chances, that God knows and orchestrates even the smallest things and directs them according to his perfect plan. That when you know the providence of God, the next question that the catechism answers is, what are the effects of that? If you believe that, which is a powerful doctrine, like how does that change how we live? And this is what the catechism says in verse 28. It says, if you know that, it teaches us that, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future, have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. The providence of God is a powerful doctrine, and when you believe it, it means that when things are going well, you can be thankful, but also when things are hard, it says you can have patience in it. You know, God has a purpose for it. God creates, he's in charge of not just the plentiful years, but the famine years. And so in the famine years, if you believe the providence of God, you have to believe God has a purpose for this. God is weaving something together to fit into his sovereign and perfect plan. Uh, providence of God gives us peace. Uh, we don't have to fear our nightmares. We know that it's in God's hands. Uh, it's in his sovereign, fatherly hands. But finally, there is this about the providence of God. The providence of God leads you to action. You know, a lot of people believe who don't believe in the providence of God say, well, man, if God knows and directs and orchestrates everything, then what is the use of doing anything? What's the use of any of our actions? Uh, doesn't the providence of God lead you to fatalism, which says, what's the use? Like, we're all pre-programmed by God. Everything's going to work out according to his master plan. So what does it matter what we do? Well, look at the text. What happens when uh, Joseph tells Pharaoh about the providence of God? He says right afterwards, you need to, you need to step up and get to work. Because Joseph says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, appoint a wise man over the seven years of bounty. Set aside one-fifth of it. Every year, set aside some some grain, a fifth of grain. And do that so that in the years of famine, you'll be well stocked. The nation will be saved. Many people from around the region, they will come to you, Pharaoh. Uh, Joseph says the providence of God doesn't lead you to fatalism, but it causes you to work, to plan, to prepare. Uh, This providence of God means that Actions are important because actions and desires are part of God's plan. God uses our actions. God uses our desires. They are all part of God's plan. They are all useful to God. They are things that God not only directs the ends, but also the means. And so that when we work, we can work. But here's the thing. If you believe in the providence of God, you're going to plan, you're going to prepare, you're going to work. But not with the stress. Not with the stress of it's all on me. Now you can work, now you can prepare and plan, but you can do it with faith, you can do it with peace, uh, you can do it with hope, that God's going to use what you do for a purpose that is infinitely greater than you can ever imagine. The providence of God leads you into action, but that action can be faith-filled, hopeful, joyful. That's what the providence of God can do in your life. Uh, what happens in Pharaoh's life is that that fear, 
uh, and anxiety turns into this confidence and joy. In fact, he's so joyful that he rewards Joseph in a powerful way. And what happens at the end of Joseph's life is that that idea of nightmares to dream is the shift that not only happens in Pharaoh's life, it happens in Joseph's life. This is the last point. How do you go from nightmares to dreaming? How do you go from that pessimism to that faith? Joseph uh, is in prison for 13 years. Look at that idea. Joseph was in prison for 13 years. And only after those 13 years does he get out of prison. Uh, and he interprets a dream for Pharaoh. He interprets all of those dreams. And as a result, Pharaoh is so impressed by Joseph. He knows that the Spirit of God is within him. He promotes him. Joseph goes from the lowest prisoner to listen to this, what happens to Pharaoh. In verse 41, uh, Pharaoh appoints Joseph to be set over all the land of Egypt. He gives him power. Secondly, Joseph is given authority. In verse 41, he's given a signet ring on his hand. That was like a badge of authority, of honor. Third, Pharaoh says that when anyone sees you in Egypt, they are to literally bend their knee and bow to you. Joseph is given honor. Uh, Joseph goes from the outhouse to the penthouse. He goes from being a prisoner to being exalted, second in command over all of Egypt. He's given uh, honor. He's given power. He's given authority. Uh, it, it hits Joseph all at once, the blessings of God, the favor of God. You know, it, it probably was a lot to handle. Uh, how does Joseph handle all this newfound fame? Uh, you know, one pro tip, some of you guys are reading through the Bible. I hope that's going well. And some of you guys are reading through it. And sometimes the Old Testament is confusing. You know, read through Exodus. Some of you are reading through Exodus and you're like, I don't know what this passage is about. Here's one pro tip. One pro tip to how to read the Old Testament is pay attention to what characters name their children. That's a Hebrew little way of summarizing how they're feeling at the time. Uh, it's like the... Uh, character in a sitcom or movie turning to the camera and talking that's basically what that is uh pay attention to what characters name their children because that really is how they're feeling and how they're processing that moment what they're learning what does joseph learn what does he name his two kids he has two sons and right after this he names them something gives you a glimpse into his heart this is what he says in verse 50 before the year of famine came two sons were born to joseph Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, born them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. Name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph names his two sons two things. Manasseh, because he says, uh, God has made me forget all that hardship. And Ephraim, because God has made me fruitful. That Joseph, what he learns throughout all of these things is essentially the providence of God. He learned that even though he's been through the prison, through slavery and betrayal, he says, God, I've learned so much through that. Out of my affliction, God, you've given me this plentiful harvest. That, God, you've weaved together these dark things for my good, for your glory. Joseph has learned this idea of the providence of God. And finally, uh, to summarize in verse 56, 
There's even a bigger picture that Joseph understands. It says, so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. You know, what's beautiful uh, in the story of Joseph is that at the end of it, it's not just a story about Joseph. It's a story of God working through Joseph to save a nation, to bless a nation. That this was not just a personal story about one man, but it was about a nation. It's about actually a kingdom of God. The story is about the heart of God. God's heart is always to heal, to restore, to redeem, to bring his people back to himself. That's the heart of God. The heart of God is always wherever you are. Living in darkness, in distress, in addiction. The story of God is always to redeem, to heal, to restore, and to save. And that's what Joseph's story points us to, is that idea that out of that darkness, God is doing an infinitely beautiful thing. So as we close, I want to ask you this question. And the question is this. Uh, are you led by your dreams, or are you being chased by your nightmares? Uh, we looked at those two things. Pharaoh was chased by his nightmares. He was living in fear. And he's constantly thinking and dwelling on those negative things. Are you living by your fears? Or are you positively living led by God's dream for you? God's vision for your life? How are you living? So much of us, so many of us are living out of fear instead of faith. You know, I have uh, three kids talk about them a lot, and uh, they all play basketball. I don't know why, but they all play basketball. Uh, my daughter, she's 10, she plays basketball, and uh, she's, she loves to play basketball, but she's always intimidated when she, whenever she steps on the court. She's intimidated because she's almost always the smallest person on the court. There are girls twice her size that she's playing with. And when my daughter, Zadie, plays basketball, and she gets the ball, I see her in the game. I'm like that dad who's always shouting stuff from the stands. I'm like that dad, and uh, sometimes I coach her as well, and whenever she gets the ball in a game, she's very defensive, like she's like trying for people not to get steal the ball from her. She plays hot potato when she gets the ball. I get the ball, I'm going to pass it back to you. You know, she doesn't want to get it stolen, and she's very defensive when she's playing basketball, and I have to tell, the, tell my daughter, Z, I'm like, Zadie, the goal of the game is not to not get the ball stolen, the goal of the game is to score. <laughs> You know, stop playing so defensively. It's great if you don't get the ball stolen, but you're actually not helping your team. You're not hurting your team, but you're actually not helping your team. When you get the ball and you're being defensive, you're looking down, you're not looking up and seeing all the opportunities around you. You're not seeing your open teammates. You're not seeing the open driving lanes. Stop playing the game so defensively. You know, so many of us are like that in life. We live so defensively. We're always concerned about what could go wrong. We're up at night anxious about all the different things that can go wrong in our lives. We can lose our jobs. Our kids could get sick. We, we are constantly obsessing over the negative things. We're living fearfully instead of we're missing the opportunities all around us. Uh, we're not hoping and dreaming about the things that God can do positively in our lives. And the question for us are we led by our fears instead of being led by faith? What if you use all the time in your life uh, that you use to worry? 
What if you use that time, instead of worrying, use that exact period of time to dream? What if you did that? It's not adding anything to your day. You're just replacing something negative. And using that time to say, say, God, what can you do positively through me? What are some things? What are some, some new stories you can write in my life? What are some people that I can engage? What are some dreams that you can start dreaming through me? And what if you replaced all that negative self-speak with positive dreaming? How would your life change? You might say, well, how do I get that confidence? Well, ultimately, the story of Joseph leads us to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the greater Joseph. Joseph went through some hard times, and he, and he got to some great times. And that's really just a miniature story of Jesus. Jesus went through the darkest of times. Joseph was in prison for 13 years, but Jesus was beaten, betrayed by all of his friends, was cursed by God, stripped naked, and bore the entire curse of humanity on himself. Struck down the ultimate lowest of lows. The Apostles' Creed said he descended into hell. He bore all of the wrath that we deserved on him. Yet in that darkest of moment, God was redeeming and healing and taking our curse in our place. And because of that, Jesus got to the highest of heights. Joseph was called second in command. Not the first in command, second in command. He was given all authority and honor. Philippians 2 says Jesus, when he was resurrected, ascended to heaven. And it says that Jesus is given a name, what? Above all names. So that the name of Jesus, what? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. He was given the highest honor and glory. And really the story of Christianity and the story of his believers is that we're, we're to follow Jesus. And we have to see our life through the lens of Jesus. That whenever we go through trials, we see, God, you are still, you are, just as you work through Jesus' suffering, working through my suffering. And we're to have the hope, just as you resurrected Jesus, you will also resurrect me. You know, uh, speaking of nightmares, some psychologists speculate that the reason that we have dreams is that it's your brain uh, preparing yourself for the worst case scenarios in life. Uh, it's your brain so that it's like a fire drill so that you're going through the worst case scenarios to practice so that when that worst case scenario happens, you're ready for it. Like I've been through the worst nightmare. I practiced for this so that when it happens, you can be calm. <laughs> you could have it figured out. You know what to do. You've lived through that. You know, one of the ideas of the cross is that when we go through suffering, we can know that we have been through the darkest sufferings in Jesus We've been through death in Jesus. If we believe in Jesus, we're in Jesus. We have experienced the lowest of lows. And we see that in that low moment, God had used it. So that there is nothing you can ever experience in life lower than that. So that you can have confidence that even if I die and I'm dead in Christ, I can be raised. I can be resurrected. So that you can never experience anything deeper than that death, deeper than that pain. And it's the confidence that if God can get you through that, everything else is easy. I don't have to fear in life anymore. There's nothing worse than the cross. I don't have to fear death. Oh, no, he can resurrect me from that grave. Would you live with that kind of confidence that comes from knowing Jesus? Would you be invited into his presence? Uh, when we place our lives in God's hand, we don't have to be afraid of mistakes. We don't have to fear the unknown. 
Uh, it is in Christ. It is in him. As we close, many of you are reading the book Liturgy of the Ordinary in your community groups. And one of the big ideas of Tish Warren's book is that in order to be shaped as God people, we need an everyday liturgy. Every day, we need to, to be in the presence of God. Every day, we need to confess our sins. Every day, we need to lay down our anxieties moment by moment, our fears, our anxieties. Every day, we need a rhythm of reminding ourselves, no, God, you're doing something great. You have an infinitely beautiful future for me that's awaiting for me in eternity. Every day, you've got to remind yourself of that glory and that joy. Would you, day to day, moment by moment, replace your nightmares with a vision of God's dream, his perfect, beautiful, infinitely bountiful dream for your life? Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning, and we lay down our anxieties to you this morning. Father, we want to, as your people, confess all of our fears, all of our guilt, all of our insecurities, and all of our pain. We want to surrender all those things to you. God, we give you thanks that you have, your uh, providentially, you have given us a perfect plan that you everything including our pain is in your hands help us to trust you with that plan thank you for jesus who gives us a glimpse of the future uh that in him we've been through the the lowest of lows and you brought us to the highest place Uh, help us to be a people of hope help us to be a people led by your vision for our lives which is beautiful and glorious Uh, Call us to renounce our fears and to live as your faithful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.